0: When I was a kid, the church I went to did what most churches did back then when it came time for the offering. They had these really fancy plates that they would pass along the aisles. When I was a kid, I thought they were made of gold, but I think it was just brass. And they had the gentle little felt thing on the bottom so that when people put change in, it wouldn't make a big rattle. But they would pass these plates up and down the aisle. And then finally, once they got to the back, the ushers would take these offering plates, bring them to the front of the church, hand them to the pastor, who then in turn would turn toward the altar and place them on the altar. And as a kid, I, I was watching this and I'm like, wow, this is really cool. And one of the things I thought of was, when does God take that? <laughs> and the, the way our church was set up, uh, they, they hid the back wall by having this really fancy kind of red curtain type thing. And so back when I was a kid, I thought, maybe God lives behind the curtain. And maybe when he, when no one's looking, like he'll just reach behind the curtain and take all the stuff from the offering plates. And that's, that's how he gets it. And then I remember one day I was so shocked when Mrs. Stefan was caught taking the plates off the altar and taking them into a room with someone else to count God's money. And I remember thinking, oh, Mrs. Stefan, God's going to be angry. God's going to be angry. And isn't this something we want to get right when it comes to God's money that we give back to God? But it can also be this topic shrouded with questions. What does it mean to give back to God? And how exactly do we do it? So that's the question we're going to wrestle with today as we get into part three, the final part of our series called Money Matters. And just to set the table with a few things, we're not doing this series because we have a a fund that we need to raise money for, and our, our budget isn't tight, so it's not like we need to get money for the church. And especially on the topic of giving to the church, there's a couple things I wanted to just make sure that you knew, because I don't want these to distract you for the message. The first thing is that I have no idea who gives and who doesn't give to this church. So if you've been coming for five years and you haven't given a single offering, I am blissfully ignorant of that. And the opposite is also true. If you've been coming for one month and you gave us a million dollars, I would have no idea. So this message isn't because we've got a problem that we need to fix. Um, the other thing I could have done for this message is I could have asked our financial secretary, could you please give me just a breakdown, an anonymous breakdown of how much the typical family gives here at North Cross. I didn't ask him for that information because this message isn't about solving a problem. Um, the reason we're doing this series and specifically this message today on giving is because our goal as a church is to lead people to Jesus. And guess what Jesus talked about almost more than any other topic? Money and giving to God. And so last week where we left things off is Ben talked about the importance of having a goal with your money. And he talked about the importance of using all of it to honor and glorify God. And the way to do that is with a plan. And he talked about a simple three-step plan, give, save, live. Some of your money you give, some you save, some you live with. And what we're going to do today is focus especially on that first one. What does it look like And how do we give? So that's the question we're going to look at today. How and uh, why to give back to God? And the way I'm approaching this is I'm putting all of my assumptions and all my ideas to the side. And what I did is I just opened up Scripture and I I asked, why and how do we give back to God? And And I think we've already talked about the disclaimers, where it's not like there's this big problem that we need to figure out or solve. This is just us, a church, a group of people humbling ourselves before God's word and asking the question, how do we get this right? Do we need to change the way we think or I think about giving back to God? And so today I might test the limits a little bit on what we might be familiar with. And we might just break out the brass plates. <laughs> I'm kidding. We won't break out the brass plates. I, don't know. I think they're silver. We actually have silver ones, but we don't use those anymore. But anyway the first thing that might come to mind when it comes to giving to God or giving back to God might be this idea of the tithe. This was an Old Testament command that God gave to the descendants of Abraham who formed the nation of Israel. The reason it's called a tithe is because it comes from the word tenth. The command was that the Israelites would give one-tenth of all they got back to God. And so if, if, if you, were, if you uh, believed in God in the Old Testament times before Jesus came, this would be a very short sermon. You would say, well, why and how do we give to God? And the answer would be, you give to God because he commanded you. And how you give is you give a tenth of all you get and you give it to the priest. And we would say, amen, let's go home. Everyone get out your checkbooks. <laughs> so that's how things worked back then. It was, it was a tithe. It was a command from God to do this. And as you look throughout the rest of the Old Testament, and by the way, the Old Testament has now been replaced with a New Testament or a new covenant, which was established by Jesus. We'll talk about that in a moment. But this Old Covenant, God gave this command that the people of this nation were to tithe, to give a tenth of all they had. And you'll see some other words come out in this Old Testament, this Old Covenant language. Some other language you see is you'll see first fruits mentioned. Because I know maybe the the people are thinking of the loopholes and they're thinking, okay, if God wants a tenth, I'll just wait till the end of the year. And then if I have a tenth left over, I will give my leftovers to God. And God said, no, I want the first fruits. You take from the first of what you get and you prioritize me in your giving back to me. And another phrase you'll see throughout the Old Testament is you give what is without defect Because we all know if if you're going to have to give away some animals, well, you might as well get rid of the crippled ones and the really old ones that you really can't use much anyway. God can have the leftovers. God said, no, whatever you give to me, it must be without defect. It must be perfect. And so throughout this old covenant, God did some things. First of all, this was practical in nature. Because in some ways, this tithing command is similar to a modern-day tax system that a country might have. There's definitely some differences, but there's some similarities. So the tithe was one way to support the nation of Israel, but it also had a spiritual impact. And I'll, I'll put it this way. The Old Covenant enforced a life that kept God first. It enforced a life where people would revere God on a regular basis. They would have to take their tithe to the priest. In some cases, they would join the priest in eating it, or they would watch the priest sacrifice it. But it was a reminder that their life was dependent upon God's favor and God's love and God's power. And so that this was enforced. And the key word here is the Old Covenant enforced this. But you are no longer enforced to do this. Because when Jesus came... He fulfilled the command to tithe. So, while this command was practical and it was spiritual, it was also prophetic. Because day after day, year after year, people would have to bring their tithe to to the priest. They were reminded they owed God. But no matter how many tithes they would bring, the priest would never say, Congratulations, you're paid in full, you don't have to give any more tithes. No, it was every year, every day. And every year, every day, they would be reminded that blood had to be shed. Because in order for people to be in a right relationship with God, it's not just what we bring to him, but it's that a life has to be taken. And so at the perfect time, at the right time, God fulfilled the Old Testament tithe, the Old Testament first fruit, the Old Testament without defect. God gave all of his one and only son. All of him. And Jesus gave his life to fulfill what this tithing law predicted. And we talk, when we talk about Jesus giving his life, we often think about him dying on the cross, which is part of it. He gave his life as the ransom for our sin. And his payment was not just a tenth of what was owed, but because of who he was, it covered everything. No payment is now outstanding between you and God. There is no more tithe, no more payment to be made. But the other part of him giving his life is that it was every second leading up to his death that he gave for you too, because he had to be one without defect, perfect and holy in every way, so that when he became your substitute, it actually meant something. So God gave all of his one and only No more tithe required. No more of your first fruits. No more of your animals or plants or whatever without defect. But now God has fulfilled that for you. And you might be thinking to yourself, oh, thank goodness. Because the last thing you want is the pastor knocking on your door, asking for your annual income and saying, did you give 10%? And you say, was it before tax or after tax? How does this work again? And you might be so thankful that now we have been released From this Old Testament tithe. And just a quick word, uh, one more uh, thought on that word tithe. Some Christians today still use that word tithe. Um, Some of them literally view it as they decided to give 10% of their income. And so they call it, they're giving their tithe. Other Christians use the word tithe in a looser sense, where this is their offering. This is what they give to God. And so as they use it, don't just automatically think they're thinking old covenant and they're forced to do this. Uh, We kind of use it in different ways. But what Jesus did was he released us from this command, this enforcement to keep God first. But before he get too excited, he replaced it with something different. John 13, before he died, Jesus said, a new command I give you, love one another. And up, to, up until this time, he said, treat one another as you want them to treat you which is kind of the golden rule, right? Just treat others as you would have them treat you. That's how we get along. That's what the law of Moses, the commandments, made sure of. Jesus said, I'm going to give you a new commandment. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. There is no more command to tithe what he's saying is, I want you to consider the kind of life you've been given because of my love for you. And I want you to love others accordingly. Uh, Paul put it this way, as he taught Christians in the first century, how to live this out. He said this real quickly in Romans 12. He said, therefore, I urge you brothers and sisters in view of God's mercy, or because of what God did for you, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. This is how to give back to God. So, quick review: the tithe was an Old Testament command where it enforced God to keep God first in their lives. It enforced people to keep God first in their lives. Um, number one, the New Testament, the New Testament giving actually asks more of you than the Old Testament tithing. And now you're groaning, like, oh, I thought we were getting off light. But no, it actually asks more of you because it it doesn't command you. Just do this. That would be easy. What it asks you to do is to consider for yourself what Jesus means for you. Think through the way he lived every day of his life to be free of defect, to be perfect, to be holy on your account. Think of the way he gave his life on that cross to take your sin on himself. And then the invitation is given. However you see fit, would you meditate on that truth and then live your life accordingly? And when it comes to giving back to God, the the whole idea, and maybe I'll define it this way, what does it mean to give back to God? I'll, I'll probably oversimplify this, but to give back to God is simply to use what you've been given in a way that isn't about you at all. To use what you've been given in a way that isn't about you at all. So the way I've learned growing up, you can give to the church. That's not about, that's about the, the ministry that's going on. It's about leading people to Jesus. That's one way to give back to God. Um, you know what else Jesus said people can do to give back to God? Buy them a cold bottle of water. Buy someone a cold bottle of water and give it to them if they're thirsty. Because Jesus actually listed that as one of the things, one of the marks that signifies that someone is on a trajectory toward heaven. So what does it mean to give back to God? It means to use what you've been given in a way that isn't about you. It's about about God's kingdom, about doing what he wants. And a big part of that is, yeah, through his people as they share his gospel. But it can also be as simple as loving one another as Christ has loved you. Not so that your name is written on a plaque, but so that you... You just carry out your Father's will, and it's not about you. So fast forward to the New Testament. What does this look like? How do we give back to God? And thankfully, there's a really clear example in one of the letters written in the New Testament. It was a letter written by Paul, who, uh, he was incredible. He planted a bunch of church. He, He went around the Mediterranean area, and he talked to people about Jesus. And when he had People gathered together, he would form a gathering, something that we would now call a church, um, that he'd go around from place to place, and here's what we see in First Corinthians chapter 16, where Paul is talking to them about uh, what the people in Corinth were going to do. He said, "Now, about the collection for the Lord's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do." And we only get a few details scattered throughout some letters. But what Paul is referring to is a collection, an offering that the people in Corinth were going to give to the Christians in Jerusalem. And Paul had talked to them. He said, here's the need. Here's what's going on. And the people in Corinth raised their hand. They're like, we want to give. We want to help those people in Jerusalem. Now, just to give you a scope for this, here's the map that shows you the distance from Corinth in the top left all the way down to Jerusalem down here. And this isn't a Bible Sunday school Bible map. This is a Google map. But you can kind of see, if if you're kind of walking and you're taking ferries, this is, a um, it says kilometers, but it's about a 1,200-mile journey from Corinth to Jerusalem. And so they can't just Venmo the money over to Jerusalem. They're going to have to send a pretty good delegation of people to keep this offering safe. So it seems over the course of many months, they had time to build up this offering, this collection, and Paul was going to send some people through to gather it. And then we get into 2 Corinthians, and this second letter, actually third, kind of complicated, that Paul wrote, he gives some further directions about this gift. He said, last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. It's not just your intention, but it's your action that counts. He goes on. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. Now, this this is important to keep in context because this is clearly not giving an offering to a church. Um, and I'll, I'll read on. He says, at the present time, your plenty will supply what they need so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. So again, this isn't like a traditional offering you might give to a church. If that were the case, what would happen is we would pass the plates up and down the aisle. And if you had plenty that week, you would put some in. And if you did not have plenty that week, you would take some out. That's what the modern-day equivalent would be if if we were to recreate what they were doing in Corinth. Those who had plenty would give extra. Those who were in need would take out. And by the way, if you're ever in a church, unless they give you explicit permission to do so, i suggest you do not take out. You do not take out. But it's important to keep this in context because as we see the principles that come out of 2 Corinthians when it comes to giving, we have to remember the story behind it. So the the thing I want you to take away from this is maybe unfortunately in the past, maybe maybe you felt guilty. Because a church or a ministry or a nonprofit, they they let you know of a need. And they said, If if you're supporting us, here's what your support would look like. And at that time, you were in no position to give. The thing is, whenever you look throughout the New Testament, whether it's situations like this or others, never is guilt used as a tool to get people to give. That is an old covenant rule. The old covenant command is that you must tithe. And by the way, if if you want to see how serious God was about that, read Malachi this week. He was a prophet in the Old Testament just four chapters long, but he, he laid into the people because they were not tithing. And they, Malachi laid on the guilt. That's an old covenant rule. That's an old covenant command that has been fulfilled and replaced by Jesus. And what he invites you to is not guilt, but to give by grace. And what we know is number two, there will be times to give and there are also times to receive If you're meeting with your group this week, you can talk about which one is actually harder for you. Is it harder to see an opportunity and be in a place to do something about it? Or is it harder to be in a place where you need help and you need to ask for it? The beauty of the church is that this is not a place where we will guilt people and saying, if you love God, this is what you'll do. This is a place where we say, because God loved you, you are invited to make that choice on your own. We don't give by guilt. We give by grace. Then Paul goes on. Finally, we're getting to chapter 9. He says, There's no need for me to write to you about this service to the Lord's people, this offering that you're going to give, for I know your eagerness to help. And I have been boasting about it to the Macedonians, telling them that since last year, you in Achaia were ready to give, and your enthusiasm has stirred most of them to action. Paul's saying, when I told your story, like I just told you that, hey, there's a need in Jerusalem. You guys raised your hands and you were so excited. You were begging me, find a way to help us help them. And Paul says, when I told other people about what you did, they said, we want into. And isn't this the cool thing about giving? F- giving by grace. You're not compelled by guilt, but you are excited because of what we can do together. Then he goes on. This, this sounds intimidating, but I'll explain. He says, "'I'm sending the brothers.'" Uh, the brothers is just a friendly way of saying um, fellow brothers in Christ, uh, members of the church. "'I'm sending the brothers in order that our boasting about you in this matter should not prove hollow, but that you may be ready, as I said you would be. For if any Macedonians come with me and find out th- uh, that you're unprepared, we, not to say anything about you, would be ashamed of having been so confident.'" And so now you can start to see that this is a sizable gift that they've decided to give. They can't just join together and pass the offering plates around. This is going to be months of planning and gathering and collecting so that they can one day give this gift and send it 1,200 miles to Jerusalem. This is why Paul told them, your your giving should have a plan. Giving should have a plan. They needed a plan in order to carry off this, this offering. So once again, he says this, Uh, he says, I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to visit you in advance and finish the arrangements for the generous, big gift that you had promised. Then it will be ready as a generous gift, not as one grudgingly given. So here's their context. They pledged a gift. Seems like they're not on track to deliver it. So Paul sends the brothers to them to remind them of what they had promised to do so that they can fulfill what they had already decided to do. Now, we can pull from that several good uh, things uh, from from this account. For us today, it's still good to have a plan about how you want to give back to God. And part of being a, a good steward of what you have is that you look through what God has given you and you break it out into those categories. Give, save, live. So we can learn from that. It's also good to be intentional with what we have and and to say that, okay, if I said I would do this, and and by the way, some of the biggest ways you can make a difference is not just by chipping in 10 or 20 bucks whenever whenever you feel like it, but let's have a big goal, a big give that you have in mind. What would it take to carry that off? That's a good thing to have, but there's no law behind it. You don't have to do that. It's just a question of what's, What's moving you? And how do you have an appropriate plan to carry off what God has called of you? And so for the, for the people in Corinth, there were all sorts of reasons why they could have decided not to do what they had promised. Like, oh man, Paul, that was a year ago. Inflation, mm, things have changed. Um, you know what? That's a lot of money, and we weren't really on track to do this. You know, we had good intentions, but I don't know if we can do it. We'll still send something, but I don't know if we can do everything. They could have had all sorts of reasons to not do this. And the same is going to be true of you. If you intentionally break out everything you have into give, save, live, every month there will be reasons for you to divert money from give and save and put it over into live. And there will be reasons every year to say, well, I'm not sure how the year's going to end. I'm not sure if we have enough saved up. I'm not sure if there, this will happen or that happen. Or, man, I would really like this, and I didn't see this coming, but, man, this would be really nice to, to, to have in my life, and so I want to buy this. And you can find all sorts of reasons to change it up. But here's the encouragement that we, we can take from Second Corinthians. Don't let the many reasons to not give distract you from the main reason to give. Sometimes things will change, and you shouldn't feel guilty about having to change your plans. Uh, It it happens. But for the most part, I find this in my life, there can be a lot of reasons to not give. But don't, don't let that distract you from the main reason to give. We love because he first loved us. And as Jesus has loved me, so I must love one another. And then Paul concludes with this. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give. Oops, yeah, let's, let's I, love, I love the way you're, yeah, love it. Remember this, I like this one better. Remember this. And by the way, we're getting into in 2 Corinthians chapter nine. And so this letter would have been read to the, to the congregation all at once, like just all the way through. And so maybe by this time, Paul's like, they might be sleeping. And so he says, remember this. And by remember this, he's like, oh, people, oh, oh what is it, what is it? Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Now, if we take this out of context, what can we make it mean? If you give to God, you'll receive even more. And I'll just put the excited preacher voice aside for now. You can take this out of context and say, if you give, you'll get so much back. And, and preachers have done this. They've turned this into a prosperity promise to say that if you give this much to God, you'll get double return or triple return. And and they've used this as a promise. But in the context of 2 Corinthians, what do we know to be true? Paul said, they're in need right now. And you guys are taking a risk by sending this generous offering over to Jerusalem with no guarantee that they will do anything for you. But here's what we know. When you sow these seeds of generosity, guess what will happen when you're in need? They will be there for you. So you're sowing some seeds today. You're you're sowing some generosity, some kindness. But know that when you take that step, you are setting the path for something that might benefit you in the future. And and beyond that, that, what I know, and we'll talk about this in a moment, there are non-monetary blessings that come from giving and giving in a way that's intentional. And we'll talk about those in a bit. Here's his, uh, one of his uh, further remarks. He says, each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give. Again, should your giving have a plan? Yes. For them, they had already decided. They'd already told Paul, this is what we want to give to the, to the people in Jerusalem. So Paul says, what you've decided to give, do it. Not reluctantly, not under compulsion, and not because I'm ordering you to do so, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. God will take care of you through this. Don't, don't do this reluctantly or under compulsion. Do this cheerfully. And, and some of you might think, okay, well, as soon as I feel cheerful, then I'll start giving. Um, that's like me saying, I'll only go to the gym when I feel like going to the gym. Like, it's, I never feel like it. But I know it's good for me. And sometimes you have to go through the discipline of something in order to reap the benefits of it. And so just one quick encouragement for you. If you haven't experienced the cheerfulness of giving, and that's been holding you back, what if you just tried pushing through it for a month, for two months? What if you just tried it, even if you weren't cheerful at the front? Just see if the cheerfulness develops in the future. Anyway, don't wait to feel like giving until you start giving. When you consider what God did for you, let your giving come from a place of cheerfulness and joy. And in all things, in all ways, God will provide so that you will abound, maybe not in earthly money, but in every good work. And then here's the promise. I'll throw in one one verse. You will be, this is a promise. This is a guarantee. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. you will be enriched. If you intentionally take part of what God has given to you and you decide, I'm going to give this back to him, it will enrich you in every way. Think about that. It will enrich you in every way so that you can be generous. Generosity isn't about what you give, it's about who you are. You can be generous. You'll be enriched in every way. And what I've seen in my own life, and other people have told me the same thing, that when they take that step of not just, you know, kind of every once in a while giving, but when they have a plan to give and it's sacrificial and it kind of makes them wince a little bit when they think about what this will mean for them, when they take that step, they say, my life has never changed that much. And I'm not overwhelming the power of the gospel to change your life. Like that changes your life more than anything else. But when you walk in the faith that God has given you, and you you consider for yourself what it means that Jesus lived and died for you, and you give according to that, you are enriched in so many ways. I'll share one example of how I've been enriched. First, let's finish out the passage. The second thing that happens is that through us, Paul says, through me, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This gets us back to what it means to give to God. What it means is it's not about you. It's not about your benefit. He, he could have promised them, hey, when I get to Jerusalem and give them this generous gift, we're going to take part of this gift and make a plaque for the people in Corinth about their generosity and what they did on this date. And he, he could have said, we're going we're to build a church for you. We're going we're to donate the organ in your name. And he could, he could have done all sorts of things to compel them. This, there's something in it for you. But this is the other thing that makes... New Testament giving, so much harder than Old Testament tithing. You have to take yourself out of the picture. Your giving isn't about people seeing it and being, ooh, they're really good. But your giving is just between you and God. Maybe it's just a bottle of cold water to someone who's in need. Maybe it's an anonymous gift, and when people receive it, they say, wow. And they don't know who to thank, so they just say, thank you, God. But that's what giving to God is all about. So number four, give in a way that seeks enrichment from God and results in thanksgiving to God. And I'll give you a very, this is a principle. I know this is like, what does that mean? We'll talk about an actual plan in just a moment. But given in a way that seeks enrichment from God and then also seeks to result in thankfulness to God. So let's play this out. What would this look like for you this week or this month to put this into practice? Um, There's three steps. And you might get caught up on the second one. So don't get too worried about the second step. The third step is the one that's important. Here's what this would look like this week. Uh, First step is define what living sacrifice would look like for you. And it, it, it can involve many things. It can involve the way that you use your time to serve others and your talents and your abilities. But for the sake of this series, the, the big topic is your, your money, your possessions. What does living sacrifice look like for you? And this isn't something where I can step into your life and say this is how you should live or this is how you should give because this is about you and God as you consider the sacrifice that was made for you. And then the life that you live in response. Not out of guilt, not comparing yourself to others, but just finding joy and peace in the presence of your father through Jesus Christ and by grace saying, how can I honor him? So think through that, define what living sacrifice would specifically look like for you. Here's the one that might get you tripped up. Would you practice it for 60 days? And here's the thing, I think that North Cross is a very worthy recipient of any offerings, but if that's tripping you up, give it to a nonprofit. Give it to something that breaks your heart, that's happening in this world. And you're like, I wish this wasn't a thing. Would you find a good organization that will take that money and use it well, and just give it away to them, not asking for a plaque in response, but just saying, I want to love others as I have been loved. And here's one way to do it. Practice this for 60 days. That's, if you're bad at math, that's two months. (laughs) And so this is kind of, for most of us, it's two cycles of looking at your monthly budget and saying, okay, what would this look like? And it's not a long-term commitment, but it is enough to, to... Get, get this into practice. Practice it for 60 days. And here's, the, here's the, probably the most important part. Would you pay attention to whatever resistance you encounter as you go through this process? Because I guarantee you, there will be part of you that says, oh, you shouldn't do this. There's going to be reasons that come up that, ah, oh, I, I, I don't know if I should, don't know if I can. And when those feelings come up, would you just pause everything and inspect them? What is causing the resistance in your mind? Is it fear? Is it anger? Is it entitlement? I'll tell you what it is for me. I'll be totally transparent. Please don't tell anyone else about this. For me, inside of me, I have found that there is a financial Pharisee. A financial Pharisee who thinks that he can spend money better than anyone else in this world. So why would I give my money away when I can use it so much more efficiently and effectively? That's what's in my heart, this little financial Pharisee that likes to hoard the money and use it for himself. And so I've had to take that financial Pharisee and remind him of who he is. What I have is not mine. And what I'm able to do with it is not about me. I have been bought at a price. I belong to my master. Money is not my master. My master is Jesus Christ. And he has declared that his body and his blood is the price that was paid for me. And mindful of that sacrifice, I gladly, willingly give this money away because it's not about me. It's all about him. So as you pay attention to your own voices, your own resistance, would you not just run away from giving, but would you think about what's causing that? And that might be the most valuable part of this whole exercise. So, money matters. Money matters because this is one of the things that Jesus talked about more than anything else when he talked to people. Because he knew that money has this unique ability to own you It has this unique tendency to to master you rather than being your servant. And so keep in mind, Jesus is a much better Lord than money can ever be. And when it comes to what we've been given, our goal is to honor God with all that we've been given. And one of the ways we do that is by being intentional with the way we give it away to prove that wealth has no power over us but we are actually willing to use it for something, someone, other than us. So give it away. We're going to conclude it with that. Next week, we get to start a new series that helps get us prepped and ready for the celebration of Easter, Christmas, Christmas. <laughs> Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, I know that there can be so many red flags that go off in our own minds and hearts whenever the topic of money is discussed. I don't know everyone's situation. Money can be a complicated thing, and, and all of us are a little bit different in that regard. Some of us know exactly the joy of giving that we talked about today. Some of the people that are, are tuned into this message or listening here, they've, they've been doing this and they've been reminded of why they do it and the joy that, that comes through it. And some of us are on the other side of things where maybe giving hasn't been a thing we've done before. I thank you that you do not enforce a life that's centered on you, but rather this is something that you invite us to be a part of. Help us this week to set aside the guilt, set aside the past, and use today, this month, uh, next year as, as a starting point of ways that we want to honor you with money and material things. Where there is guilt, let it be forgiven. Let it be washed away. And let us take steps, maybe just small steps, in how we can give in a way that is of no benefit to us, but rather give in a way that carries out your will for this world. Thank you for Jesus, for his life, his death, his resurrection. Thank you for the hope we have in him. It's in his name we pray. Amen.